It's time to make the dough rise, the financial podcast with Brian Doe. Hey, welcome to another edition of Make the Dough Rise. I'm Walter Storholt alongside Brian Doe, certified financial planner at Livingworth Wealth Advisors. You can find us online at livingworth.com. We've got a great episode today. We're going to try to keep Brian from hurting himself. He's going to be patting himself on the back pretty hard in today's episode (laughs) as we look back at some conversations, some predictions that Brian had not all that long ago. And to be honest, you've been vindicated in many ways here, Brian, and and kind of proven correct in some of your analysis of the different things we're going to dive into today. So uh, although we we, we joke about you patting yourself on the back there a little bit, Brian, no, this is good insight to kind of look back, check in on some comments that you had recently on a couple of various topics and see how it's all panned out over the last few months. So I'm, I'm intrigued by today's episode. So I've got two lookbacks today, one that's going to go way back, and we'll get to that in a little bit. And this one, I was vindicated very quickly, and it all revolves around the ESG, environmental, social governance uh, issue that you're hearing a lot about, trying to use non-financial metrics to you know, guide corporate actions, decisions, hiring, behaviors, benefits, all that kind of stuff. And uh, the the diversity, equity, and, and inclusion mantra, which are close, they're, they're close cousins. They're a little bit different, but they're kind of the same. And I would I would lump them together in the woke capitalism and applying these kind of woke social justice criteria to managing your business. And you know, don't get me wrong, I don't want anybody stinking up and polluting the atmosphere. I don't want anybody mistreating employees or, you know, not hiring somebody for racial reasons, all, all of that behavior is abhorrent. And I, I, I get what some of the champions of, of these criteria are wanting or for, you know, in the positive side of it, but, but they've, they were, they were taking it so far as to um, throw financial sense out the window. And so back in episode 52, we talked to about the politically incorrect guide to investing and I'd had a friend that called me and, and was working on an article because her clients were interested in ESG investments. Everybody wanted ESGs, especially the the millennial and, and younger crowd. And I said, you know, I, it just it looks like a scam. That was kind of the angle I had that it was, it was Wall Street was you know sort of propping up this idea of do gooderness, uh, while in the back end they were like supercharging you for an overpriced index fund that had these woke criteria applied to it. And I think it was also used as a veil to cover up some of their own discriminatory practices against women or whatever it is. I I won't do a whole lap back around the topic. So that was episode 52. And then just recently, about five episodes back, we talked about the diversity, equity, and inclusion issue. And we Tweak the acronym to DIE and, and basically making sure you avoid these companies that are engaging in, in these types of non-financial, non-competence-based criteria. And the big vindication moment came just recently. If you've if you followed Bud Light at all, have you have you kept up with the Bud Light saga? Uh, yeah, I don't know how anybody hadn't heard at least a little bit about that that story over the last couple of months, right? Yeah, so I think they just had a super woke director of marketing. They, you know, they were going to put somebody in there that was going to bring diversity and in, 
representation and and all this to to update this fratty you know sophomoric brand that that Bud Light had. Well, it turns out that you know Bud Light had spent about thirty years building up its brand and its audience, and they they came out with a a partnership with a transgender activist or influencer. I, think, I, I think guess influencer influencer is probably a p- appropriate term. Someone who's uh, just trying to basically make a living on social media, right? Yeah, yeah. And 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 uh, they they partnered up, and it was really just kind of a side little deal, but it just blew up into an absolute uh, catastrophe for Bud Light and. Bud Light had been the number one selling beer in the country, and I think now they're currently at number four, which, if you think about it, is a massive, massive move. And and so if you are going to promote and, and jam a concept onto your core consumer that they're not on board with, there is a financial peril to that. And InBev, the parent company, which ironically isn't even an, an American brand anymore, it's German. Yeah, they lost billions of dollars in market capitalization, and uh, Bud Light sales have just plummeted. And granted, it still sells a lot of beer at number four, but it was not nearly what it was. Well, if you think about your distributors, uh, your retailers, everybody, and, and then the shareholders who who hold the, the stock, all of a sudden, management was very accountable to explaining why they were going in this particular direction because you know billions of dollars and lots of jobs and retail space and transportation and everything that goes into the supply chain of of distributing beer was drastically disrupted and they had to start giving it away just to to move it out now in the ultimate mega corporation irony here i think the other two or three brands that have moved into the first, second, and third spots are also indirectly or maybe through a subsidiary owned by InBev. It's like the same corporation owns all of them. And so they're still capturing all of the you know beer sales because these were very commoditized type of products, very substitutable one, one for the other. But, uh, you know, if, if you were invested in a company that had one main product or that was their main product and you didn't have the two and three uh, spots behind it, it could have been a, an absolute, absolute disaster for them. So de- definitely, uh, you know, a lesson there. And I think one that's going to be studied in the you know, marketing books for, for quite some time. Yeah, it's really interesting because this is kind of what you were talking about. Like, all right, that's this is the the danger or the concern is when we start putting these things, maybe overweighting, um, you know, uh, the concerns of the social side over just the dollars side. Right? It's that old, you know, do we do we focus on profit? Is should that be the main driver of any business? And most business owners will tell you, yeah, focus focus on profit. That's otherwise you're not going to have a business to then do other social stuff with or all the auxiliary things. So that's always got to come first. And it just seems like certain companies have gotten way out of balance with kind of keeping that in mind. And that's what your big concern seemed like it was over all of the different ESG and DEI initiatives. And the focus is it was just getting way out of weight. And that's where where you were just like, ah, I just want to stay away from this concept right now because things just are overweighted in the wrong direction right now um, from a purely business standpoint. This isn't, this isn't doing good business um, if, if we're Precisely, approaching yeah. things these way. 
Yeah. And, and if you think about a marketing initiative, you, are you really tuned in and in touch with your core consumer? Uh, if for some reason you're trying to change that, maybe do it gradually and not so, so drastically. I don't know. But, uh, you know, the, the other names too that we've seen some speculation or, or actual boycotts on, uh, Disney and, and Target. And there's been a lot of drop off in Disney attendance. And I'm going to offer an alternate theory on that here in just a minute. But uh, you know, they've they've really pushed the the woke and and uh, diversity type topics to the point where, like Bud Light, it was almost we're going to just jam this on you. We're going to impose this on you, whether you like it or not. You know, I think people people eventually at some point get get tired or are reacting to it. And then Target, you know, they they got caught in a big uh, backlash boycott this summer. Because I think they were all on board with the the pride, but they had a whole line of clothing targeting uh, and aimed at children. And uh, yeah, I, I won't even go into the details of it. But they they partnered. They had some uh, very inappropriate clothing items for children, and then they had partnered with an artist that also happened to uh, have a lot of satanic artwork and very. Um, very inappropriate stuff. And it, once it surfaced, everybody was like, whoa, hold on. That's not, not what we're interested in. So hopefully some of these financial consequences will send a message up and down. And and uh, have even seen an article recently on uh, Yahoo Finance where Larry Fink, do you remember I me mean, talking about Larry Fink, I do. the CEO yeah. of BlackRock? So he was one of the big proponents of ESG and we, we, we really kind of helped. I don't know if he started the buzz phrase of ESG or if he was, he definitely was one of the big uh, champions of it. You can find clips of him talking about it quite a ways back. But there was even an article that said the headline of the article was good riddance ESG. Uh, Woke is walking. Larry Fink, CEO of investor investing giant BlackRock, said he'll no longer be using buzz, the buzz phrase ESG. Well, I don't know if he's going to stop using the buzz phrase, but still promote some of the policies because some of the policies go back to uh, divesting from in, or are not investing or not providing capital to energy companies because it's just intersects with the, the climate agenda and, and all the, the global warming movement. And so there's been a lot of trouble with um, getting financing for, for certain energy companies. And, and when you get a, a company as large as BlackRock that controls, you know, bond issuances and, and debt access, it, it's been a clear and measurable uh, skew away from financing for oil and energy companies when that's probably something we need to focus on with the gas and shale revolution that we've had in the U.S., those are far cleaner sources than coal and the, some of the other things being burned around the world uh, to, to create energy. So it's, I'll be curious to watch and, and see if this truly does kind of go by the wayside now or if maybe this at least puts it in check so it's not um, the main thing that everybody's talking about. And the, the, the other one, too, that I, I saw just, I think it was just this weekend, was an article by the Wall Street Journal, and the headline read, The Rise and Fall of the Chief Diversity Officer. And this is something that we had seen a lot of. You, you see a lot of it in academia. They have deans, uh, department heads focused on diversity, uh, de whole departments you know, focusing on this. 
And then it worked its way into uh, corporations and you had these diversity officers. Obviously the intention of this sounds good. You know, let's, let's get opportunities for underrepresented groups and uh, you know, make sure everybody has equal opportunity. But they were using it almost as a, uh, just like a quota system. And it begs the question or leads you to ask, you know, are you getting the most qualified people in there or are you just putting a person in there because they're female or a different race or ethnicity or something like that? And obviously competence needs to be number one in the business world. There are uh, places where you can, you know, education maybe is a better place to focus on raising people up and, and giving them access to opportunity. But if you're doing it at the expense of results, it's eventually going to catch up, up to you. And I think that was my main point to begin with. Yeah, lots of things uh, catching up, it sounds like, could be applied to many of these uh, conversations. You mentioned an alternative theory to, uh, to, to D- Disney situation. Okay, so now going back, we everybody knows I've I've talked way too much about Taylor Swift on this <laughs> podcast already. <laughs> but having you know you're attended, yeah, I'm a big big Swifty, and I have an ultra Swifty at home, and actually three of them. And somebody calculated that this Eras tour is turning into about a three point seven billion dollar phenomenon. So if you add up, you know, the, the ticket prices. Everybody buys outfits and gets all decked out. They go stay at hotels. They go out to eat. All the stuff that people are spending money on to go and participate in one of the Eras tours. That's a $3.7 draw on consumer resources. So Disney park attendances have been down about 25% below expectations since March, which is exactly when the Eras tour began. And so if you look at the economic concept of substitution is if you've got X number of dollars, you've got limited resources, where, where are you going to spend your money to, to maximize your enjoyment of it? And, and a substitution would be if you decided to go to the Eras tour and spend money on the Taylor Swift phenomenon, you only have a, a certain window to do that. And that's while that tour is happening. So maybe people were not spending money on alternate entertainment like Disney. And so if half of the people that went to the Taylor Swift concert went in lieu of going to Disney, which is a pretty big, bold assumption, but just just for fun, if if half had gone to Disney instead, Taylor Swift was single-handedly the cause of the drop in attendance at Disney. So... Nice. That's uh, just a Swifty theory, but that's the uh, correlation is not necessarily equal causation, but still interesting to look at the the numbers. (laughs) Yeah, but but I mean, seriously, there 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 has to be some factor of it uh, because if you're spending that much money on, you know, you're you're talking about thousand, couple thousand, few thousand dollars to to take a you know couple people to a whole equivalent expenditures there for sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I I can see where people are like, all right, we'll do the Taylor Swift show, but we're we'll cut out. Maybe not Disney specifically, but we'll we'll cut out other things that that would have been like it. So well, it's just like the beer situation, right? So a lot of people stopped drinking Bud Light, but they didn't stop drinking beer. So those dollars just replaced elsewhere, right? Yeah, and I think it's a it's a testament of a you know still healthy economy and uh, consumer demand. People are having fun. We're past COVID. You know, there, there, there's a lot of good stuff happening. Yeah, and um, you know just. Just stay cautiously aware and, and avoid the uh, the woke 
phenomenon and make make sure you're not getting involved in, in companies that are overemphasizing that to the uh, to the detriment of their profit and ultimately your share price. Well, we mentioned we were going to be looking back at a couple of different things in today's episode, a bit of a, a hodgepodge of topics uh, in, in today's uh, conversation. Something that felt a really far way away, Brian, when we first started talking about it, uh, were mm-hmm. the tax rate changes that are coming down the pike. You know, we've been kind of in that lowered tax environment with some benefits to many of us uh, for quite some time. Well, that end date starting to draw a little bit closer and sound a little bit closer than it was when we first started talking about it. Yeah, I've been having a lot of really good uh, tax planning sessions, and I've I've added a really, really good, I've t- talked about it before, but uh, I've got a, a really great new uh, tax planning tool that I'm getting a lot of mileage out with uh, out of with clients, where we scan in a previous year's return, and then we're able to you know, look and see what are the different tax traps that we've talked about many times. What's it going to do to your marginal income tax bracket? What's it going to do to your capital gains tax rate? How's it impacting the taxability of social security? And you know, when you should begin that potentially impact of taking money out of IRAs versus other sources like capital gains. And then what's that, what is that going to do to your uh, Medicare supplement premiums? And so I've, I've been putting, you know, people's returns in and it, it, really helps me make sure we're getting all the information off the tax return. But then we can run scenarios where we can begin to plan for, you know, this year and next, what where are the best places to pull money and or realize gains and, and things like that. But the really great feature of it is there's a drop down button that you can either stick with current law or you can add in the sunset provisions to the Trump era tax cuts. And in 2026, we are going back to the rates and the brackets and the rules of you know the Obama era rates. Well, that may be good for you if you're getting capped out on your state and local tax deductions. But if you're having a lot of uh, IRA distributions because that's where the bulk of your retirement funds are, th- this could be you know a two to six percentage point increase in in tax rates roughly uh nothing precise about that but uh you know just just from what i've seen and so it's really good to again let's use the next couple of years to take any advantage of lower tax rates which can lead to the realization of capital gains roth conversions you know maybe you're in a high income tax bracket now and we we should evaluate whether uh, that's actually going to come down in the future. And, and maybe the things that may make sense for one person, maybe the opposite applies to you. But suffice it to say, the change is coming. It's coming soon. You know, soon. You still have a couple of years to take advantage of these things. And we've got some great, great tools to help you uh, forecast and, and calculate that. I usually wait till the end of the episode to tell you all the ways you can get in touch with Brian. But just since if anybody's really concerned about that tax change that's coming down the pike and some of those tools that Brian can use to help you analyze your situation, don't hesitate to reach out and have a conversation about it. You can go to livingworth.com, click that book a call button, or you can dial 706-451-9800, 706-451-9800. 
Well, I mentioned it was a bit of a hodgepodge episode uh, today, Brian, and uh, kind of our main topic of the day beyond some of the uh, you know ESG and DEI conversations and these tax changes. You've also just been having some fun conversations with clients and uh, maybe been hearing some stories about people working with, with other advisors, and so it kind of got us thinking, what are some of the more problematic personalities that might exist out there of rogue advisors? What are maybe some red flags that we can be on the lookout for and spot some of those kinds of concerns? And so we've kind of pegged uh, three personalities you might want to be aware of if you're ever looking or shopping for a financial advisor, because these tend to be somewhat prevalent in the industry, and uh, they can be problematic if you get your money, your life savings involved with somebody who maybe doesn't have all your best interest in mind or all the tools at their disposal to be able to help you in the same ways that a fully competent certified financial planner might be able to. So, Brian, what are uh, what's one of those personalities we should highlight on today's show? Yeah, uh, personalities or a- approaches to the business. I, I've I've been getting a lot of people, you know, recently and and over the years even that I would say have fallen victim to the the one trick pony, uh, the one hit wonder. You know, they've they've got one product that they're just fanatical about. They you know, do whole free steak dinners talking about how this one product will solve all your problems. And when you go in with money, all of your money ends up in, in this case, it, it, annuities. I, I see a tremendous amount of people coming in with old annuities they bought, old annuities a parent has bought, one that they're being sold today, and uh, or even ones that I don't want to totally disparage them because I've, I've used them in a few select cases, which is how you should use most products, uh, you know, as they're appropriate. But you know, they they change the rules, they change the caps, they change the spreads and things that are there's a, there's a lot going on in them, and so people will come in and they'll have worked with a they they've got the title financial advisor, wealth advisor, whatever it is, but surprisingly, every time they had extra money, they got a different annuity, and they don't go together. There's no particular strategy to it. It doesn't match the timeline of when they might need the money. They're stuck and locked into long deferred sales charge periods. They can't get their money out without incurring these penalties. And so it becomes very hard to to help people. And the the really tragic thing about it is, is people have no idea what they've bought. They don't know, realize what all the fees are. I had a client in my office last week and she had this, some statements and, you know, right now money market's paying five, about 5% CDs. You can get five, five and a quarter, something like that, five and a half. There's some really good CD rates out there. And so he says, should we be doing something different? Well, we started breaking down the investments and I found, I found the investment, which happened to be an investment wrapper that was made up of a whole bunch of other funds. So you have the insurance company taking out a certain fee. Then you have the fund of funds charging a fee. And then the funds that are in the fund of funds also have a fee. And by the time we got done, I think they were probably handily in the three, three and a half percent fee and was getting, you know, one, two, three, four percentage return for uh, long time periods when you would have been. F- Far be- she seemed to be getting all the volatility and the risk of the market, what was concern number one. But then long-term, the re- results were in the low single digits. So she was actually taking a lot of market risk and was not realizing you know, market 
type returns because of all the the fees dragging on there. So watch watch the one trick wonder and anybody that is a little too excited about a particular product and you know they they try to to shoehorn you into that one product for for any solution. Another type of advisor you could run into in addition to the one trick pony might be the expensive but empty suit. What does somebody who uh, kind of uh, fits that description end up looking like in terms of a advisor relationship? Well, I would say I got to experience some of that in my days at a large Wall Street firm where you've got a lot of mahogany and fancy furniture and expensive looking offices. And it's nice to know that you've got a credible, reputable institution that you're dealing with. But just make sure you're not paying for a lot of decorations that don't also come with or are backed by deep knowledge, expertise, and understanding of all the financial planning, the portfolio, the insurance, the estate planning, all the things that go into a, a real financial plan, longevity, long-term care. You, you've, got, you've got to get all of that factored in. And so many times you get people that are very good at one area or the other, or maybe a couple of them at best. And uh, you know, they, they've got a good look. They've got a good appeal. They've got a great team. They're dressed nice. Their office is fancy. But so often I find that um, at the end of the day, they're either lacking or are discouraged because of liability to the firm from giving true comprehensive advice. So you're, you're paying the premium more for the, the brand and all the accessories and things that look nice about it. But uh, you, you may not be getting actual real full comprehensive advice for the price that you're paying. So make, make sure you've got some criteria. Again, I th- happen to think the, the CFP is a good indication. Maybe as a another barometer, I always tell clients to say, when was the last time your financial advisor asked for a copy of your tax return? Are they actually looking at how what they're doing is playing out on your tax return? And you know, so more often than not, uh, the answer is never. And so th- there's, there's a couple of good ways to, to make sure you're not overpaying and getting that high-priced expensive suit. Yeah, it's a great point and a good one to bring up on the show. All right, last but not least, let's hit one other uh, personality or style of approach to investing in financial planning that people might run into, and that would be the what we'll call the Armageddon profit. Mm-hmm. You see a lot of this on advertisements on in between the shows on CNBC. You get a lot of it on uh, YouTube, online uh, ads, radio shows. There, there, there's a lot of people out there that are all doom and gloom or you know, everything's got it. And overwhelmingly, these people are selling books and seminars or they're selling like gold and precious metals or some, some kind of fund, or, or maybe it's an insurance product. Th- those are usually the ones that I see. But I, I was doing some cleaning out this past weekend and was going through some old books in my, in my bunker and just trying to make some space for new books and other clutter to bring in. And I found this book called uh, Financial Reckoning Day. And this was given, me, given to me by a colleague uh, at Merrill Lynch back in 2004. And this guy, he, he was kind of a great guy, you know, real honest, ethical, good, good person, but uh, just oh, worried, always worried about that or the monetary system or government, what they were doing and, and a financial collapse and, and, and anything bad that could go wrong. And he'd gotten a hold of this 
you know, this particular book about the financial reckoning day. And the subtitle of the book is surviving the soft depression of the 21st century. Well, that's quite a title because is he talking about a century long depression or is this going to be a, a depression that begins in the century and we never get back on track? I mean, that, that's a, that's a massive sounding prediction, but I looked inside the book jacket and it, Talks, you know, it's written by a, a reviewer and, and very quickly says, uh, this book is brimming with down-to-earth wisdom and take-it-to-heart lessons. Financial Reckoning Day tells you why the information age stock boom went bust with sobering insights into such companies as Amazon.com and Cisco Systems. Well, at the moment, this was in 2004, I think that the uh, copyright date on this book was maybe the end of 2003. Yeah. Copyright 2003. So, so we were at the, at the end of about a three year run on the dot-com bubble busting and you know, that whole bloom was off the, off the rose there, I guess is how the expression goes. And, and so this guy was writing off the whole information age and obviously Amazon had gone up, you know, from, a dollar to a hundred and was probably back down to a dollar to five dollars, something like that. But really this was all just getting started. This was a decades long phenomenon. And if you had bought Amazon and Cisco at, at those times, uh, over the last 20 years, you've actually made a lot of money. The other one they mentioned here was global crossing. That one actually, you know, they're, they're, some companies are going to fail for sure. But, uh, I thought it was just interesting that he was taking this opportune time when things were not going well for tech stocks and then, you know, predicts that and extrapolates this out into the future and, um, you know, makes it sound like we're going to go into this at least decade long recession when really the opposite happened. We, we, I think he's calling it why high spending, High borrowing consumerism leveraged the U.S. economy and what you might expect from the soft, slow depression in the decade ahead. Well, the decade ahead was actually a recovery uh, out of the dot-com bubble and then a rapid and uh, not at all soft financial crisis that came out of the uh, housing sector and, and the whole subprime thing. So while he's on to a right concept here, high borrowing, consumerism, uh, there was a lot of other factors involved too. And it was the banks, the brokerages getting involved in this you know, money-making phenomenon, uh, collateralized debt obligations played into it, government policy that was you know, promoting and pushing this, lots of factors, but it was that, that was kind of a swift and uh, very specific sector that, that led to that. So anyway, I just... I read these books, I go back and find this, and it's kind of like the Taylor Swift calculation. There's an element of truth to these things, but be careful of getting drugged down by uh, doom and gloom or getting caught up into you know, putting all of your portfolio in gold or treasuries or insurance products or things like that, uh, you know, because it is a very bad bet, in my opinion. This is kind of a play on Warren Buffett's quote, you know, don't, don't ever bet against America. The other topic they talked about in this book was, you know, why Japan's miracle economy unexpectedly collapsed. 
and why the monetary stimulus failed to revive it. Well, that's true. Japan did sort of stall out. But I think as we look back on that, that is more of a demographic phenomenon. They did not have a replacement generation. And so they're dealing with a very, very you know aging population. And, and um, I suspect China will be next on the, the list to go the way of, of Japan because they've, they've got the same problem happening there. And America still continues to be a great place to uh, protect private property, protect intellectual property rights. We continue to attract top talent from around the world. Uh, one of India's biggest problems is brain drain. Uh, people that get educations and get qualified, they'll go to Southeast Asia, they'll come to the U.S., they'll, they'll go to places where uh, it's friendlier to uh, advancement, startups and and uh you know economic growth and and we and our infrastructure has some issues but we've got an infrastructure system between rivers and roads and railroads that is you know nothing short of spectacular so don't fall for the doom and gloom don't fall for the armageddon profit it it uh, in my opinion is just going to it's going to be a costly mistake for you as well uh, great points all throughout today's episode covered a lot of ground from taxes to different types of investments and failed theories to advise our personalities and strategies that probably won't lead you down the path of success. Uh, it's a lot to absorb, but if it leads you to have additional questions, well, uh, listen up for the next few moments because I'm going to tell you a little bit more about what it's like to work with an advisor who encompasses all of these different angles into a financial plan to make sure that you're well prepared for your future. Speaking of your future, are you looking to take more control of that financial future, but not exactly sure, like, where's the starting point? Where's that starting foundation? Well, you can let Brian Doe, seasoned certified financial planner with more than 20 years of experience, be your trusted partner. Whether you want to create a solid retirement plan, uh, whether it's receiving expert guidance on optimizing your investments, or perhaps, like we talked a little bit about today, avoiding costly tax traps, whatever it is, Brian's got you covered. And don't forget that as a certified financial planner professional, he meets the highest standards of education, training, and ethics, always putting your best interests first. So if you want to get in touch with Brian, take advantage of a 15-minute complimentary call to gain clarity on your financial goals and prepare for that more secure tomorrow. Don't miss out on this opportunity. Reach out and let's pave the way to financial success together. The ways to reach out are simple. You can certainly do it online at livingworth.com and click the book a call button. Again, just go to livingworth.com or you can call directly 706-451-9800. 706-451-9800. That contact info will be in the description of today's show so you can find it easily as well. Well, Brian, thank you for breaking down all of these different moving parts and angles on today's show. Enjoyed uh, all the different conversation today, and I know we'll have another good episode on tap next month. Sounds great. I enjoyed it. Good talking yeah. to you, Walter. Really appreciate it. Thanks, everybody, for joining us, and we'll talk to you next time right back here on Make the Dough Rise. Make the Dough Rise is brought to you by Living Worth Wealth Advisors with a central office in Greensboro, Georgia, but serving the Lake Country and beyond. The podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all your favorite podcasting apps. Subscribe today and never miss an episode. Just search for Make the Dough Rise with Brian Doe. 
You can also visit MakeTheDoughRise.com to listen to recent episodes. If you'd like to contact the show or schedule a complimentary financial review with Brian and the team, just go to MakeTheDoughRise.com and get in touch through the website. Or call 706-451-9800. Thanks for listening to Make the Dough Rise. Investment advisory services offered through Main Street Financial Solutions, LLC. Information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment, tax, or legal advice. Information is obtained from sources that are deemed to be reliable, but their accurateness and completeness cannot be guaranteed.